0: Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry.
1: We have two goals, to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth.
0: What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates?
1: How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients?
0: What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry and what are companies doing about it?
1: So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And remember,
0: the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Today, we're joined by Rolly Das, who's currently a senior director at BMS, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and serves as the worldwide medical lead for women's cancers, glioblastoma multiforme, or GBM, and emerging tumors. She's also spent time as a professor at Rutgers University, and we're thrilled to have her on the show today. Welcome, Rolly.
2: Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So maybe we can start with filling in a little bit more of your career history since I did that in like five seconds. so
2: Yeah, because I'm, I just graduated pharmacy school. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, thank you. I I, I really do enjoy um, discussing kind of how I got to where I've gotten because I do think that um, it's a little bit different than probably a lot of folks in the pharmaceutical industry, um, yet all of my steps along the way have been very valuable um, and fulfilling. So. Um, So after I graduated pharmacy school, I worked at a clinical research organization for two years um, based out of Princeton, oncology-based CRO, Um, got to learn quite a bit there about clinical study design, et cetera, Um, really thought I was going to make a transition into the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, But as I conducted my day-to-day, which involved um, originally some CRA work or clinical research associate work, I, I recognized what I enjoyed about the job, which was, a lot of it was um, understanding the patient journey and how drugs affected that patient journey. So I um, decided to dig a little deeper, went to do a clinical pharmacy practice residency, uh, spent a year at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Um, wonderful program, great city to be in, to do medical training. I mean, hospitals everywhere, and not to mention the nightlife, but that's another podcast we can talk about. Um, and then came back to teach for Rutgers University. So I taught for Rutgers University for um, about uh, 12 years or so. And then got enough, was fortunate to, enough to get an opportunity with Bristol Myers Squibb in medical information. So joined BMS after uh, Rutgers. And um, was in medical information for a little bit. Moved into um, the, the company went through some reorganization and medical promotional review became its own function which was very interesting, expand the entire BMS portfolio. So I led a team of about 25 across hematology, solid tumor, oncology, immunology, and cardiovascular disease at BMS, uh, the promotional review capability for medical uh, in the United States, and then just moved over last August to worldwide medical doing oncology. Um, primarily my function's breast cancer, I love it, um, have a huge passion for it, and also gynecologic malignancies, um, as well as a little bit of the GBM program. So a lot of twists and turns, but I'm, I'm really excited about where I've ended up. It's uh it's it's kind of interesting. Started off in oncology, went to internal medicine, and ended up back in in oncology. So
1: something I picked up there that I, I didn't realize when we first connected and started talking. Did you go into a CRO and then go back go back for residency? And then so that so your your path you're nodding here because we're on audio so <laughs> for, the, for those who can't see her um, so that's that's a little bit non-traditional too and something that is commonly asked by students and is is you know, wh- what about what if I go and start a career can I go back and move into a training program and I've seen it before but can you speak to how you went about you know balancing the decision-making because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a financial hit to take that step, but it's, it's, to me, it's that future in mind. So can you, can you kind of touch on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. It's a really good question, actually, because there definitely was um, a lot of debate that happened. So I have to say, I started thinking about this um, right around, so my, my friends did the fellowship program. Um, So as I was at the CRO, um, again, a year and a half into it, my, my friends were rounding out their two-year fellowships. So um, I started floating the idea by them. And I'm laughing because they thought, they were like, I thought you were drunk at mid-year when you said you were doing a clinical residency. They're like, you weren't serious. And I was like, no, no. I mean, I was drunk, but I also was serious at the same time. Um, so I actually went to mid-year with the friends that were completing the fellowship program. Um, in order to explore and understand a little bit more. Because like I mentioned, at the CRO, I realized as I was going to these big-name oncology centers, right, like we're going to MD Anderson, we're going to NCI, we're going to, um, you know, Cancer Institute of New Jersey, we're understand, we're reading patient charts all day long, um, because that's what you're doing as a CRA. Um, and then you're starting, I started off in clinical study management, um, clinical research coordinator type of a role, really um, designing CRFs, doing database locks, and then moving into protocol design that I really what really wanted to know more about drug therapy selection, et cetera. Anyway, so when I went to mid-year, um, I went to really explore the mid-year residency showcase, ask a lot of questions, um, try, talk to people, float the idea by, try to understand. And a lot of the names that you know, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Brown, like those those guys were there at that time and really provided very valuable guidance about what could be gleaned from a pharmacy practice residency. And then the pros and cons. Um, I had a professor there, Lois Justin, also a lot of pharmacy faculty that I still was in touch with um, that were able to share with me what the pros and cons would be should I choose to go back to do a residency and I, it turn out great or not turn out great. So the way I kind of waited at that time was that the only downside would be a year lost. And to Alex's point, um, the financial hit, right? So after two years of working, you feel a little bit confident about where you are in the, you know, the pecking order and what you can, um, what you can do and what you can't do. Um, so with that being said, it was, it was like I mentioned just a year. And I knew that if it was not going to be what I wanted, then I would go back to doing what I was doing at minimum, right? So at minimum, I would be what I was at the CRO or have to look for a new role. Um, in industry, I think um, I didn't realize when I did the residency how much I would like it. And truthfully, when I got into my career in pharmacy, um, pharmacy practice at the hospital and then working with Rutgers, I didn't think I'd stay there as long as I did. So I think there's a lot of surprises in terms of what I learned about myself, uh, what my passions are and what my abilities are and how they intersect um, along the way.
0: It's interesting, too, that the heads of the fellowship program, basically, I mean, Jim and, you know, Dean Barone, you know, had guided you that way. And, you know, I... I had also gotten some clinical experience earlier on in my career, like my fellowship was in med affairs and clinical operations. I did like part of my fellowship was designing CRFs and going out on monitoring visits and stuff like that. And then, you know, my next career step, I was in clinical research, you know, meeting with FDA and designing briefing documents and things like that. And I I feel like that experience earlier on in my career has helped me now that I'm in a role in medical affairs. And I'm curious if you feel the same way.
2: Yes, and, and transparently, that's the that's the feedback I got. I mean, it was that, um, and I didn't know Doctor A well, but I did meet him through like my I mentioned my friends that were finishing up their fellowship. Doctor Barone had done had done extensive clinical training, right? Um, well, it was Justin again extensive clinical training, and they were all very well versed in working with the pharmaceutical industry in different arenas, right? So I think from their perspective, um, the feedback was very helpful and understanding what that what that could offer me and then getting into industry myself, I agree with you I think that um, I'm, I'm able to pull from a lot of experience that I think others are not able to the direct patient care experience um, and it was it's been great because I've stayed in touch with folks that have gone this way as well um, and I have a colleague at that's faculty at Rutgers that went the other way, did the fellowship and then went back to teach at, um, at Rutgers. And, and him and I have connect, are, are great friends. So we talk about it all the time, about the transferable skills and what you learn, um, what you bring to the table. And, um, and truthfully, I think you, you, you're able to provide value um, in either which direction, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I have to tell you uh, when when I was a fellow working with you and the other professor who you who you referred to here. Uh, yes. What's that?
2: <laughs> I said, Dr. Valino. Yes.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I did, I, I, but working with the two of you was was really a bright spot. It, um, you, you both had a really. It, it was the attitude you brought to education. It was it was infectious. It was enjoyable, and you know, as a, when you're a student, um, every student knows what it's like to have. A an engaging and motivated and fun professor who understands that learning is a long haul and yeah. pharmacy school is a long haul and it's competitive and it's challenging. But I, I can tell you that to have to have professors who kind of emulate what you want to do and how you want to be and be perceived by students, it, it's refreshing. So I figured I figured I'd tell you that on, on air since <laughs> no one can see you blush uh, since it's 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 radio really, but. Um, you know, as you think about your time in academia, it, well, actually let's start at the beginning of academia. What, what drew you that direction post residency? Cause you can go with residency. You can really go a, a bunch of directions, but you, you went into academia. What, what was that draw?
2: Um, it's a good question. I wasn't able to give it up quite yet. So again, I found myself at mid that place, that behemoth of a place, um, at the end of my, or middle of my pharmacy practice residency, um, and the options were, I had originally gotten in thinking I would perhaps go to a PGY2 in oncology. Um, and you know, again, you did the marathon interview and you interviewed all up the crate place and you talked to a bunch of people. Um, I think figuring out what I liked about the residency, just like I had mentioned I'd done at the CRO, right? Like figuring out what I like about the role I'm doing, what my gaps are, <clears throat> what my abilities are, and how I can do that next, or actually meet all those. Requirements in my next role. Um, I really liked coaching and teaching, and I was like, you know, do do I like oncology enough to go into PGY two? Probably not. Do I like teaching and coaching? Yes. I had the experience of doing so in the residency. I did a little bit through mentorship um, in residency as well as at the CRO. Um, so teaching did seem like the next logical answer. And then to, to from clinical practice, it was very fulfilling in residency, and even still, and um, even up to the day that I left. There was, there's um, just the moment to moment fulfillment of of making a change in a patient's, you know, medical care is enormous. Like you get that, you get that fulfillment on a day to day basis, and um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I missed that a little bit, um, but I, it was a very clear choice when I got in, and like I said. I stayed, I stayed a little bit longer than I thought I would. I did think I would do residency and do clinical and academics for a little bit and then go back into industry. Um, but I certainly, um, I stayed for quite some time. So,
1: yeah, And, and that, that level of patient, that fulfillment from patient care, where do, where do you get your fulfillment now? What is it in your job that really fulfills you and drives you and motivates you every day?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, So right now, interestingly, my current role, I'm not a manager. Um, I have more of an an individual contributor type of function, but I work with a large matrix team and on the worldwide side. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say you went from managing 25 people yeah, to individual contributor. Yeah. Interesting.
2: It is interesting. And I think it was was interesting when you talk to people, again, I I do a lot of talking. I'm sure you're not surprised. When you talk to people about that decision, people are like, really, you're going to do that? Like that's really not the next logical move, right? Like the next logical move is it could be potentially a larger team or or, or a different function with a similar size uh, team.
0: I feel like a lot of people don't realize that you know what comes along with managing twenty five people. That's twenty five annual reviews that you have to do. That's you know twenty five you know bonuses and things that you have to determine every year, and you've got to deal with you know overperformers and underperformers. And I feel like people miss that part of the equation you know with managing people
2: yeah and i think it's about identifying what drives you um which again i do think that people coaching that's never changed i'll always be like it's almost like you can take the girl out of rutgers or like out of teaching but it can't take the teaching out of like i can't i can't i'll never stop being a coach like i love it but um I really, there were certain other things I really wanted to learn and there's certain really, there's certain other things that I really wanted to de- develop that again, I knew and BMS is one of those companies where they really encouraged that, right? Like figuring out what you need, how to go get it and they'll help you go get it. I knew that this wasn't going to be a permanent thing, right? Like I don't need to take this role and then live in it forever. Um, and I, the gap, and again, getting back to your original question about what, um, how I'm fulfilled now, I really wanted to understand um, late clinical development, right? So I... Um, being in the U.S., being in the in the arena where we're reviewing the promotional materials for customers, um, a lot of questions come up about why we can't can't do this or can't say this or can't whatever. Um, I wanted to understand what go to, what went into that and really gain and you know be involved in the development of a clinical program um, from the R and D side um, and worldwide really is is getting me there. Um, so the fulfillment then comes from. Having the ability to impact patients on a broad level and then bring my skills as a clinician back into that aspect of study design, right? Which I'm sure you guys know as well as anybody is that like, it's easy to get into the minutia of, you know, why giving, uh, I don't know, an IV infusion over seven hours improves the efficacy, you know, the ORR by 2%. But then, underst- being the clinician, of course, I mean that's an exaggerated example, but being a clinician, understanding what um, what the the logistics of healthcare, honestly, um, a to z, is um, it's just it's being, being able to share that, being able to work with people on that is it's it's very fulfilling, and then in oncology, nonetheless, yep.
0: That was probably the most dramatic learning for me, having moved over from the consumer health space to the oncology space, which was you know, like a radical therapeutic area transition was the healthcare delivery model and the way that folks get access to medicine, the way that things get reimbursed right. is incredibly complicated. And I mean, we have entire departments of people who, who manage these sorts of things. Right. Um, and I was meeting with a, a group of summer interns today, actually, and they asked a very similar question. What do I enjoy most about my job was the most fulfilling part of my job. And it was the ability, my answer was the ability to direct the course of research. We set our life cycle plans for a particular asset. We have the ability to prioritize areas of of future research. And when you distill it all down, at the end of that decision is a patient and their family and their caregivers. And we have to say no to things. And that's a very tough decision too, because we're denying the, the opportunity for a clinical trial that could benefit some subset of patients. And I feel like that's simultaneously the most rewarding part of medical affairs. When we move something forward, we fund something mm-hmm. and it turns out positive. Mm-hmm. That's an amazingly rewarding feeling mm-hmm. um, and simultaneously really tough because we have limited resources and we we can't say yes to everything. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think you we understand both sides now, right? Like I think it's it can be challenging. I mean, and I know you're not surprised, right? Like going from an, a career in clinical to a clear career, career in industry, people are like, "You're selling out," right? Like, like you're selling out. You're selling out. You're selling out. I think um, I knew that I wasn't because obviously I had I had friends on um, in 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 many different career um, paths. So it took many different career paths in industry and in uh, managed care, et cetera. But um, it's nice to be able to come into, to industry and then go back. Like I went to the American college of clinical pharmacy meeting last, um, last year, it was local, it was in New York and it was great because I was got to see some of my closest clinical pharmacy friends that are clinical pharmacy leaders in the country, um, and talk to them honestly and openly about what it means to be a pharmacist in industry and what it does not mean transparently, um. And it, and it was great. It was great to exchange ideas. It was great to hear, you know, you and you have an idea of how it is, um, you know, in all different aspects of, uh, of pharmacy practice. So it's awesome. It's super awesome.
0: <laughs> so we have a lot of folks who listen to this show who are um, students who are, you know, obviously still in pharmacy school. And one of the things that I think you can maybe uniquely speak to, having spent a, a bunch of time teaching down at Rutgers um, in your experience, what are the top two or three characteristics that separated your top students from the rest of the pack?
2: Yes. Um, I think that students, um, stu- students are fun. Students are probably, you know, there's, there's the amazing students. And then there's obviously the ones we always had to talk about the 80, 20 rule. We talk about the 80% of students that you spend that are amazing that you spend 20% of time on the 20% of students that are not amazing that you spend 80% of your time on um, and what distinguishes them from each other. Um, I think the two main characteristics has always been, and it's probably similar and you've probably seen this as well for your colleagues, it's, is motivation and I guess respect slash kindness. So the ability to, to play well with others we talked about children before we got on, right? Like the ability to play well with others is, a, is, a, is an important one. I think that when I look back to my classmates, those that went on to have very successful, amazing careers, um, some of them at BMS, some of them in industry, some of them in pharmacy practice, clinical community, um, everything, it's not, nec- it's not the greats. The grades are, and you, you know, I'm sure you others have said this as well on the podcast. Grades are, are honestly not it. You all made it into pharmacy school. You all passed pharmacy school. You're all smart. Y'all can do it. So then, what is it that makes those people rise amongst the ranks and, and have really good, um, successful journeys after that? Um, I th- I think it's just that people want to work with them. They're they're driven. They they they're accountable. They're passionate. They, um, they do basically what they say they're going to do plus more. Um, and then there are people who when I see their name on a calendar invite, I'm like, yes, that person's at the meeting, right? So they're, you know, they they have a positive attitude, and they're kind. And that that just makes for for a pleasant every day. I've always been the person and you'll probably laugh. Um, I was asked on my interview, it was probably not one of my most shiny moments, but I was asked at the end of my interview at BMS, they're like, what's the last thing that you want us to know about you. And I was like, I like to have fun. And they were like, what? And I was like, no, like, I, I honestly live by that. I ca- I've never had a career. I've never had a job yet. Have I? No. That I hate it. And I can't imagine ever being that person that wakes up in the morning and is like, oh, here we go again. You know, like that's not, That to me is wrong. Because I think when you feel that way, only like bad things are going to come. And uh, transparently, that's when I, th- I think you should know it's time to do something else. Like that's when I always said like stale water, yucky things grow. Like that means things aren't good. You got to figure it out. You got to switch it up again. Um, that, those things, I think, um, really, really make people do well. Like just stay, st- having make, make to make sure you're that person keep things fresh, make sure you're motivated, make sure you're happy, make sure you're positive, um, because otherwise you're, you're, you're not doing anybody a favor, not the people you're working with and not the, not yourself for sure. It's a very long-winded way of saying be motivated and nice.
0: <laughs> well, and, and team culture matters too, right? I mean, it, like you talked about, you know, your, your own outlook and, you know, your own approach. I had always heard the advice, you know, tough on the issue, easy on the person you know? Mm-hmm. And I, like, I've always tried to live by that, that like, just because I'm like really digging in on a particular issue, it's not, it's nothing personal. Like, it's like, I'm just trying to find the best solution to a particular issue, like, and, and not try to be mean about it. But team culture has a big effect on that. Have you found that in your experience?
2: Mm-hmm. Team, team culture? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I really like what you said though. So you said tough on the issue, Kind on the person. Easy Easy on the person.
0: Easy on the person. Yeah. Easy on the person, tough on the issue. Um, As a way, like Pfizer also has this, like, no jerks policy or no (laughs) jerks philosophy, right? Yep. Um, You know, and it's all centered around the idea of, you know, we we can come and be, you know, like really debate something vigorously back and forth, you know, like a a rigorous exchange of ideas. Um, Well, that's how ideas grow.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think. I think healthy debate is important and I think being, yeah, I guess I've never really shied away from, from sharing, um, or, or being involved in a, in an active discussion. And you can imagine through a, through the role in promotional review, there's a lot of active discussion. Just a little. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's not the most liked person a lot of times, but, um, I think, (laughs) like you said, I think understanding, um, the issue, well, what you said tough, tough on the issue um, I think it is very important. And and being able to step back when you do feel like it's getting on the person, right? Because I do think just everybody comes to the table um, with their own context and their own passion behind what why they're behaving or acting a certain way or have a certain opinion, right? And it's easy just like in life everywhere, truthfully, at home, at work, to really dig your heels in. Um, and I think, like you said, the the culture and the way I thought about it when I was in leading that promotional review team was that um, we have to keep perspective, right? Like we all get super bogged in to like, you know, bogged down into detail and really get very focused. And when you step away for a second or maybe like a few seconds and come back, you recognize really what's valuable, what you should be falling on the sword for and what you shouldn't. Um, and that really Makes ensures that your that that room the called you know the feeling in the room the feeling on the team the feeling in the company stays um you know balanced for what it should be
1: yeah it, it's it's approaching each situation assuming that the other person has positive intent as well uh-huh. right it's, mm-hmm. it's cuz when cuz when you have that mindset of we're all here to do a job we each have our yeah. own role and no one here is is operating under you know, false pretenses or has a nefarious intent with what they're doing it's it's all about when you have the right culture in place and and I've seen it in very positive and I've seen it very negative at times because it just depends even within an organization you can have different teams but when when the when an organization has certain values oftentimes they pull those teams along or they break yeah. them up right they yeah. they, they keep yeah. pushing towards uh getting that job done but um something that you you've, you've kind of Alluded to when describing, you know, um, characteristics of individuals who are maybe higher performers and whatnot is emotional intelligence and kind of being able to see through others' eyes and understand mm-hmm. where they're coming mm-hmm. from. and And I find, and I find that a lot of the challenges that we have, uh, whether it's in meetings, through work streams, whatever it may be, oftentimes if you can just take a step back and think about. You know, I know I've I have people that I work with who have said they're taking care of a loved one at the moment, or they're do, or they're uh, you know they're going through COVID. It's been one thing after the next. So when you have that person who can take that step back and and think about what someone else is going through and start to work with them instead of through them, uh, there can be some really positive results. But I want to I want to actually move the conversation a direction here. So you, because we started before we started recording, we were talking about our families. I, I was saying I have I have a four and a two year old who are absolutely crazy tonight. I took my four year old to uh um, to the library. They had a a lizard petting event, and and he's in here bursting through the door before we walk in. But I rec- I remember you have uh you have twins that you you have twins, and you, do you have three kids? I
2: have three kids. Yeah, three kids.
1: Yeah. Older yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh! I don't know how you got through twins. I can barely make it with two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in their in their space, but let, let's talk about how do you, how do you approach maintaining that work life balance, ensuring that you're there for your job and your employees and your coworkers, but also there for your family.
2: Wine um, is that more <laughs> or? Oh, okay? You want a little bit more? Wine? It's bourbon in this end. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm actually going to steal. So something that one of somebody in my company said a long time ago really uh, stuck with me. I'll definitely take it. She um she was talking about work life balance, and she said there's no such thing um she said it was more like work life management so that's our our general counsel our our um she's on on the uh, on the senior leadership team so she's i think that sometimes life wins sometimes work wins um but in the end i think that you're able to prioritize what needs your attention at that time, if that makes sense. Right. So you surround, I think for me, I've surrounded myself or I've been lucky to be surrounded by family. So my husband's definitely very understanding um, and supports me and my, my family, my extended family, our support network um, has really helped us get through it all. Um, So that's like, I guess, truthfully, that's the, that's like the, the high level way. I'll tell you the details. It was, it was, I mean, I can't curse, but it was like, it was crazy. Like, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. At times, I definitely, um, you definitely wonder at times if you make the right decision. I'm sure you guys have all felt that way, right? Like, I'll never forget. I had to, I'll, I'll tell you, I uh, when I left Rutgers, again, I'll have, to, I'll have to name names because I love I love my Rutgers folks. I was in Dr. Brown's office t- giving, giving him my notice. And he was like, let me get this straight. So you're, you're going to have twins. I'm like, uh-huh. And he's like, and you're gonna take a new job, and I was like, uh huh. And he's like, and you're gonna move your whole family to Central Jersey. I was like, yeah. He's like, what's well, one way to do it, Rolly? He's like, just do it all at the same time. He's like, just do it all. <laughs> Rip the off that bandit. Rip off the band-aid. Um, Yeah. So it, in hindsight, I don't, I don't know. I think that, like, you know, you, you you're able to, in the craziest of times, really see through the BS. Truthfully, you're like, all right, listen. I got, when you have, you know, a, a kid crying, a kid begging you, Your you know, your phone's blowing up for work and, um, you know, your, your husband's wondering, you know, what, who's going to do the laundry is that there's nothing left, right? Like those things, you're like, let me figure out what the most important thing is, where I'm going to d- d- give my energy right now at this second, right? Can the work thing wait? Can the crying kid wait? obviously the laundry can wait. That could always wait. You just buy more clothes. That's always been my solution. And, <laughs> um, and you're able to kind of dig, dig, dig through that, dig through that quickly. But I think, um, I've been fortunate to, I mean, BMS has been a v- very supportive. My husband's very supportive. Rutgers has always had a really good, um, way of managing, um, allowing the faculty to manage things. So, um, you know, I've, I've made it this far. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. And I, I do think having young children and having sick, you know, having elders to care for, or sick family members, all these things really throws, throws um, challenges at you. Um, but actually similar to what we were talking about before, it's important to anchor, anchor yourself back to what happens most. Just like we were saying, like, it's easy to get bogged down in details at work for work stuff. It's easy to get bogged down in details in home stuff. So I think keeping a perspective um, has helped a lot too. You know what I mean? Like, so, it, so there's dishes left in, this, in, the, in, the, um, in the sink. So what? Like my son missed, oh my God, I feel so bad last, like end of school last year. My son missed like, I don't know, it was like Disney day. And I was just having a low moment in life when I like all of a sudden he missed Disney day and he was the only kid on the bus that didn't have a Disney item. And I was like, ah, oh, my life is over. But the minute that you recognize perspective, and you, and you hearken back to your original purpose. Listen, your kid is healthy. He's, he's, you know, made it this far. Obviously he's got a, he's got a packed lunch. Like you're, you're winning, you're winning here, right? Like perspective helps you um, realize that, that you're, you're doing a lot better than you ever think you are.
0: Have you found that the approach has differed now that you've got, I mean, a really senior position at at BMS as compared to maybe early in your career, you know, like fresh out of school, I I found that, you know, as time has gone on and I've, you know, moved into more senior positions, I have a little bit more control over my calendar and my schedule and my day to some extent, you know, I don't have complete control of it, but I have more control than I did when I was a fellow.
1: That would be be dangerous Mm -hmm. to give you complete control. Nobody wants that. So have you found (laughs) that
0: the approach has changed as you've gone from position to position?
2: Um, yes. And no, I mean, in some ways, yes, right? Because I am able to, like you said, make some choices, some choices that are easy to make, right? To be able to reschedule, postpone, delay, figure things out. But I think unless you're the CEO, there's always going to be people that you are reporting to that every time a meeting with them pops up, regardless of whether it's like 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., you're doing it. You're taking it. You're, you're handling it. Right. And you're prepping for it. And you're, you're, you know, you're figuring out what it's about all that before, um, before that. Right. So that, that'll always be the case. Um, I think the biggest thing that has differed being new in industry to now is to get over feeling bad. So, um, you know, again, when I took my, took the position, my family was like, just like, you know, other people I mentioned were like, you're crazy. My family was like, you're crazy. I mean, they said that when I took the residency, they said that when I took this role in industry, I generally make crazy decisions apparently, but they were like, you're crazy. And they were like, you understand that you're driving an hour and a half to work. Cause I hadn't sold my house. Right. When I took the role and I had the babies got back from maternity after like, I don't know, eight weeks. And I was driving an hour and a half with, twins that were zero. well eight
1: weeks after twins
2: yeah i was brand new to the company so at that time we didn't have uh we didn't have a we had a child i had a challenging road i mean my manager was awesome right so she let me stay home as much as i could in my um immediate post stage but yeah i was back i was back pretty was back pretty soon um we've we've evolved quite a bit since uh since I'll, i won't give you uh yeah well, so how long ago is it F- five years ago since five years ago um, well, yeah.
1: I my my four year old, I I got a week my with my first ch- with my first kid, and then a few months later they made it six weeks, <laughs> and I got six weeks with my second kid, yeah, and then a few months later they made it. What, what did you get, Sergio? Um,
0: I also I also had six weeks, but I think it was actually so our, our son was born in November. Um, in January they had updated the policy to twelve weeks, so if he had just oh you God. know hung on a little, you bit just need longer, to have more
1: kids. You
2: know, <laughs> lucky for me and for the world that's like a scientific impossibility so i'm 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 happy i think there's more than enough roly humans roly associated humans um, on the planet we're good um but yeah so to to your original point my family was like and then my um one of my family members is um is is a lawyer for industry so he was like, you know, you got to be careful, really, because he's like, it's cute the first time that you miss a meeting because you got kids and little kids. And he's like, the second time you miss a meeting because you got little kids, it's, it's still cute. He's like, after the third time, people don't want to hear it, right? Like, you got, you're going to have to figure it out. So, I mean, he might have been wrong. He, I'm hoping he was, but it's something that stuck with me because I was like, I'm not going to be that person that uses my, or I should say uses, that has my kids as the excuse. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show, I'm going to figure it out, right? Like I'm going to figure it out, whatever. So I was very motivated to not use my kids as an excuse. But a, a downside of that is that I was very self-conscious because of that conversation of using, quote unquote using, you know what I mean, um, kids stuff as an excuse. And I think that that um, I ha- I have, I've had to get over it a little bit. I've just had to be able to say, listen, I'm not going to be able to make this meeting. Not feel bad, not explain, number one. And not yeah. not feel bad. So I need to get over it. I need to not be like, oh gosh, I can't believe so and so has to get a COVID swab because somebody in the like, stop, like that that's life. Like your kid's gotta get COVID swab. You're missing the meaning. Deal with it. You know what I mean? The world will continue to spin us this axis if you're not in it.
1: Yeah. yeah, It goes right back to that question. How do you maintain work-life balance? Right? It's it's doing what you have to do. Yeah because you have to and it's to, it's prioritizing i yep. mean i'll tell you i had i had my 2 year old on my son or my 2 year old on my lap the other day during a meeting my 4 year old walking in cuz my wife had a doctor's appointment and i'm wor- and i'm on a i'm on a call and i'm still working i've got yep. my headphones in um, i'm able, at this point you know what is this 18 months into into covid it's uh it's it's second nature to they just they just kind of move around me i've got my one son playing with my record player but it just becomes second nature but i think that you make a really good point because there's a lot of people who struggle with how do you balance having your kids there and you use the word excuse i would say it's an explanation you have you have kids too yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't call it an excuse personally but
2: 100% 100% that is a better word and i think people are understand very understanding i mean you would be i i am i was as a manager i mean yep. everybody is human beings exactly very understanding and i think people are pe- people feel better knowing that you're a human so what i found as a manager was that i would i would let my daughter come on my lap every now and then cuz i'm like number one i think she's kind of cute number two um I'm, I'm like, you, then you feel better Then the other people feel better. Cause they're I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm putting it out there. This is what's going on with me. And then they feel better. And I do think um, when I came into medical information, uh, people were a little bit surprised cause I, I, I'm not as, I didn't grow up in industry. So I do feel like a lot of, but I do think feel like a lot of people assumed coming in, leading a team that I had, I was very buttoned up, right? Like I'm very, you can see the way I talk right now. I'm very authentic. This is the way I am. Um, and, I, and I think people um, people felt a little more comfortable, let down their guard. And I've had managers, and I've often sought out managers that are like that. Because I think it, it's, it's just, it's a, again, going back to our culture conversation. It's a very good way to work.
0: I, I've told that to lots of folks over the years that, especially folks who are, Um, interested in fellowships and internships that particularly for fellowships, that one of the biggest determinants of your success is your preceptor, that relationship that you have with your preceptor and the type of tone that they set, you know, you could be at a mediocre company with a great preceptor and that can make all the difference to you. And, And likewise, you could be at, you know, one of the top companies in the world and have maybe not so great a preceptor, not so great a company culture and
1: it'll show. You know, yeah, you can you can feel that difference. Well, we're we're kind of so we we've looked at we've looked at the data on the podcast, and we're getting close to that time where there's there's attrition and people start to drop off. And I know just from the flow of this, and from from knowing you when I was a fellow, and from uh, this conversation, we could talk forever. Um, but I think it's it's a, about time for us to wrap it up and just say thank you. It, it was really enjoyable, and I can tell you. That uh, for anyone who's who's listening, and for anyone who doesn't know Rolly, it's that I think that authenticity and and what she explained that modeling. Here's what I do. I, I have 25 people on my team. Here is what I do, and this and I'm human, and it's, it's acceptable. And as that's that's the type of uh, that's the type of leader that you follow. That's someone who shows you you can be yourself, come do good work, um, and and you know it's 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 that it's modeling behavior. So, thank you for an authentic conversation. Um, you know, we're we're on episode. What is this? Episode eight now? Nine? This is episode eight. Yes, indeed. And
0: we look forward to having you back, hopefully, sometime soon. Because this was really uh, a blast.
2: Anytime. Thank you both so much. It really is a pleasure. I know um, from my years as a as a professor, as well as in in um, in my career at BMS, that what you're doing provides so much value, giving students the opportunity to understand journeys. Um, and if there's one thing I can just say um, that I've o- we've always talked about, Alex, I'm sure you probably heard this before, is that there isn't one journey to get where you where you go. I guess I mean, not disclosing my age, I'm pretty sure I'm kind of in the middle-ish of my professional career, and I've always already made a few changes. Um, I did not get a fellowship out of. Out of Rutgers yet I have had the opportunity to do amazing things and and work in the pharmaceutical industry. just giving, giving you're giving students um, what I have always hoped to give them, which is um, hope that they will uh, they'll, they'll find a career journey that will be fulfilling to them. Um, and you guys are helping that happen. so thank you. Well,
0: we're so lucky to have had a guest like you um, who can share that insight with, uh, with our audience. So thanks again and have a good night.
2: Thank you. You too. Thank
1: you. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this episode. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. You can also visit us on the IPHO website to provide feedback and learn how to get involved. Please do it because we need your help.
0: Until next time, take care and stay safe.